0: The following audio is the recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. You can visit our website at strosecc.org. If you are needing a Bible this morning, you can raise your hand and someone will bring one of those to you. Christian will bring one to you. Uh, You're going to need it because we're going to be reading it. So if you don't got one, I encourage you to get one. Also, if you are three or four years old, you can get out of here. It is time to go to nursery. So you can be dismissed for nursery this morning. And in case you guys are visiting today, my name is Cole Smith. I'm a church member here who is very, very, very grateful to have this opportunity this morning to preach God's word in front of a church who I know loves me so much. I'm so excited to do that. This is my first time preaching here on a Sunday morning. And what I want more than anything today is for you guys to be molded by God's word that's my prayer. And last week, Brandon, our pastor, he finished up uh, the book of Psalms. So over the next couple of weeks, uh, starting this week, we're going to be going through uh, a couple of the Psalms. And this week, we're starting in Psalm chapter 3. So if you will, turn with me to Psalm chapter 3. And I think it'll be on the screen as well. All right. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray this morning. God, we bow our heads humbly before you and grateful that you want to speak to us through your word. God, what a gift we have in this psalm. What a gift we have to see this moment in David's life. And I pray that we will just see Christ in it. I pray that we will see your glory in it. I pray that we will see what you do in it. And God, I pray that we will be reminded of how much you love us this morning. God, I just pray that it molds us together so we can encourage one another, we can build one another up, and and we can use this psalm to to fight the enemy and to depend on God. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for church. Thank you so much that we have a reason to sing. Thank you so much that we have a reason to to smile and interact with one another and, and have community together. God, those are all just precious gifts that we don't deserve, and today we get to sit under this word God, these are your words. Help me just to repeat them. And help us to see how amazing and present and caring you are. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you look at the superscript, which is that that part before verse 1 in the psalm, it says, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. That's an odd sentence. That's something I hope no father in here has to experience today. Uh, I know that Terry Telshow dropped his baby off in the nursery and just started crying, not because he hated Terry, was coming after Terry, just, ah, but because he loves Terry. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son, that is a big sentence. That should cause alarms to go off in our head. A man fleeing from his son, not a man who has a son coming to him for love. But if we look at verses 1 and 2, we see that this is just not David fleeing from his son, um, but we see that his son is just a part of many who are rising against him. It says, "O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. That's a big problem. Not only to have your son after you, but to have so many people come after you, countless enemies. And David is saying, how many are my foes, Lord? How many do I got? It's not like, oh, this person doesn't like me, this one doesn't like me, this one doesn't like me. I don't know who doesn't like me. My own son is after me. Many are rising against him. So clearly we see that David has a problem. He had countless enemies coming for him. But how did we get here? We're jumping right into this story, this guy is after his dad, how did we get here? So Absalom was David's actual son, and essentially what happened was Absalom began to stealthily undermine David's rule. He set himself up as a judge in Jerusalem and secretly gave out promises of what it would be like if he were the king. And after four years of plotting and spreading lies, he asked to go to Hebron where he had secretly arranged to have himself proclaimed as king over his father. The conspiracy strengthened, the number of Absalom followers grew steadily, such that David began to fear for his own life. So David gathered his servants and fled Jerusalem. That's a terrifying scene. That is a nightmare for a king. That is a nightmare for King David. All of a sudden, under his rule, he began to live through a literal uprising against him. An uprising not led by another country, but from his own people, from within his own household. Verses 1 and 2 just describe the scene like he just, oh, gosh, Lord, how many are there? How many do I got? We see his predicament. We see this is his actual life. These are his real words from this moment in time. This is a heavy, dark scene. I know we just read the psalm in its entirety, and there's some beautiful things in there. But I don't want us to forget that this was not written from a happy-go-lucky, God's got my back setting. This was terrifying, literally terrifying. Fearing for his life, he had. He has. He's been betrayed. There's people saying to him, there's no hope in God. David's problem is so bad that he didn't even know if he was going to live. David did not stick around to fight. This man was truly terrified of the evil that was coming. And, and it's no secret why he did not, did not stick around to fight. He was outnumbered. He didn't know who he could trust. Evil was completely surrounding him. It was totally Overwhelming. And that is the first truth I want us to know this morning. Evil overwhelms us. That is why we have verses 1 and 2, is because there's this moment in time in this guy's life where he was so overwhelmed by how dark it could actually get that the own king in his kingdom had to run away. Today, though, in verses 1 and 2, I want us to notice how evil overwhelms David. And the first thing it does, it's, it surrounds him. So he says, How many are my foes? David exclaims to God. But I just like, just imagine being him for a second. He starts off this prayer not thinking about his allies, but his enemies. He is totally isolated and alone. He is not finding refuge in his family, the one place it should be found, because his own evil son is after him. He is thinking of people, even dear, close friends he once had personal relationships with who have now turned against him. That's not a fun way to start a prayer. And I wish I could insert us into this moment so we could actually grasp what it felt like, what it actually felt like to be David. Thankfully, none of us have an army of children coming against us. Praise God, because some of you have armies of children. (laughs) I pray that that does not happen. But think about this for a moment. I imagine I was just trying to get into the head of David, what, what this actually would have been like. And this is the, the, the best things that I could come up with. Imagine David felt like that kid at school who gets bullied constantly and has no one to stick up for him. Or me and Randy, we used to talk when we, we lived together uh, of stories we would see on the news of, of people getting jumped or people who are just totally helpless and can't fight back. That's how I imagine David felt like. You just look at those things and they they make you sick. Like I can't believe somebody would do that to someone else. He reminds me of the elderly person who gets taken advantage of. His situation reminds me of someone who has been totally marginalized by another church who did not love them. He reminds me of people who are actually abused within their own household. He reminds me of persecuted Christians across the world. All of these examples, plus many more, are just snippets into what it feels like to be overwhelmed by evil. It wants you to feel helpless. It wants you to feel isolated and outnumbered. It wants you to fear. It wants you to think that it has all the power. I'm sure some of you have had moments like this in your life. I'm sure that you have very vivid memories of what that evil actually felt like and what it made you think. This is the tactic of evil. It it, prays, it it traps its prey in the corner by making them feel outnumbered, alone, and helpless. And Absalom had to plot secretly for four years just to overthrow his father. He took the necessary time to overwhelm him with fear, to run him out. And I hate that. I hate how evil preys on the weak and the powerless. I hate that it causes people to turn on one another. I hate that it teams up against somebody. I hate how it leaves people in despair. I hate how it sends people to their pillow at night with te- tears streaming down their face just because they're so defeated. That overwhelming feeling of, like, oh my gosh, I have no hope. And as we see in verse 1, when evil is against you, it overwhelms you to the point where you say things like verse 1, Oh Lord, I'm so overwhelmed. How many are my foes? Oh Lord, I'm alone. Oh Lord, I'm scared. Oh Lord, I'm surrounded. Oh Lord, they're against me. Oh Lord, I'm hated. Oh Lord, I don't know what to do. When I go to the city, like a little coffee shop or something, I get just a little glimpse of this. When I bring a Bible somewhere down there, you can almost just feel like, man, people are going to hate me for that. Like they have an idea in their head of who I am and what that book says, and you just feel the pressure from it. It's not a fun feeling for people to feel like they're against you. Oh, Lord, I don't know what to do. How many are my foes? And in verse 1, this was David's fearful perspective He felt surrounded, defeated, and overwhelmed, so he fled, but that is not the worst part of this evil. Still yet, the most wicked part about how evil overwhelms us is in verse 2. Notice what his enemies say once they get him in that place. How many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Evil does not stop at showing off its power by backing you into the corner. What it wants to do after it asserts its dominance on you and makes you feel totally overwhelmed, it wants to strip you of every ounce of hope and the one who could do something about it. Charles Spurgeon once said, If all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from the earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that, which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no hope for us in God. David, as he was writing as he heard the taunts of the evildoers. He felt their mockery for his reliance on God. And as he was hiding, he was thinking of their words. The problem is when you get so overwhelmed, you slowly start to believe what they're saying. You slowly start to like, man, Really? It's just me? Am I right? Are they are they honest? Are they they true? You start to believe what it says, you get nervous, you start to battle your thoughts, and when you start listening to evil, it totally alters your perspective. It makes you question your faith. It makes you believe it has the upper hand in your life, and that God has completely forgotten you. We see in Psalm 13 a time in David's life when he was wrestling with thoughts like this. Listen to what he says. You could just like hear him believing that evil is gonna win. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I'm tired of losing. I'm tired of wondering where you're at. I'm wondering if, like, you're going to come back at all. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Evil wants to overwhelm you with its lies. And we've all experienced this pain of being lied to, of being deceived by Satan's lies. John 8, 44, speaks of the devil and evil evildoers like him that we see in this scene. And it says this, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer in the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil's character is... Is evil it is out to get you it is out to overwhelm you and his speech is nothing but lies and he wants to lie to you every single day so that he can still kill and destroy your life he was doing it in the Old Testament he's doing it right now that's what he wants to do to completely overwhelm you and make you think God is not coming back for you David's enemies were saying, this is the end for you, brother. God does not hear you. But let me tell you something. Right now, in this room, if you're discouraged by the evil in your life, by how it works, by just ways you can see it coming to fruition in your life, and you're thinking this way, just totally overwhelmed, I want to remind you that this psalm does not stop at verse 2. Praise God. We do not stop at verse 2. Church. We keep going. Read verses three three through seven with me. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. There are some aspects of these verses that I want us to see which are extremely encouraging despite evil being in our face. The first thing I want us to see is where God is, what he is doing, and I want us to look at how David (laughs) responded. And The other night when I was looking at this, um, it just dawned on me that God was very, very close to David during this time. Look at verse 3-7. through God was a shield, his glory, he lifted his head, he answered his prayers, he sustained David, and he arose and fought for him. What does that tell us about God today? He is ever-present in David's trials. He is ever-present in our trials. Church, can I just say, I know some of you personally, I know your struggles, your worries, the evils that you face, and there's also so much that I don't know about what goes on in your life, but I just want to tell you this morning, God is so near to you today. He's actually near to you today. It's it's just honestly too good of a reality to think about. I personally just find that to be very uplifting. Because I I've had a week of preparation. It's just been a roller coaster. I'm like nervous. I'm so excited. I could throw up. Uh, <laughs> just up and down, up and down. But just slowly, just going through this song. Oh my gosh, he's near me. And Cody, right before I walked up here, just tapped me on the back and said, He's with you, brother. Amen. He's with you. This isn't about me, but... That's just a tiny example, and uh, I just find that to be uplifting. But what's crazy, though, is that we can be uplifted because it's very easy to be discouraged and think that God has forgotten about you. David had every single right in the world to be frustrated at God and feel like he had abandoned him. However, this is not David's first rodeo. This is not the first time David has seen how faithful God is. David is fully aware of where God is, and God is near to him. Look at verse four with me. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Where does it say God answered David from? Where is he at while he's helping David? On his holy hill. What is that? (laughs) I had to ask myself, what is that supposed to mean? But the holy hill refers to the place of the Lord's sanctuary, Mount Zion, the temple in Jerusalem where David had brought the ark that represented the presence and power of God. So David had his mind, a real place as he was writing out this psalm, he had a real place he was thinking about that reminded him of God's presence and power. Ultimately, though, what it refers to is this heavenly throne room where God sits enthroned, presiding over our troubles. The enemy can taunt David all they want. They can lie and make him feel like God is not near. But David knows who is on the throne. And he knows where God sits, and he's going to sit there forever and ever. He may have lost his own throne, ironic, but he looks to a greater throne, a greater king who reigns over evil and answers the prayers of the distressed. And David, in these verses... Tells us what God has been doing this whole time from his holy hill. So we know where he's at. Now, this is what he's doing. God was protecting David as his shield. Up, down, left, right, inside, outside, God was protecting him from every single angle against the enemy's attacks. When David had no honor left at all, when he felt like a complete failure, loser, God was his glory. When David was defeated and discouraged, God said, pick up your head. He lifted his head and he brought him joy and his discouragement. When God, or sorry, when David cried out loud, God answered him and assured him that he hears us. When David needed to sleep, God sustained him through the night when he was the most vulnerable. When David could not defend himself, God saved him and fought for him. Truth number two is this, God fights for you. God wants us to see what he did for David because it is also a reflection of what he does for us. We may not be fighting against thousands of people, but he helps us fight our sin. He helps us in our hardships, and he sustains us through our greatest trials. God fights for us. You know what else he's doing? He's, what does this, these verses show us? That he's keeping his promises to him. God has not lost an inch of ground in your life to the enemy. There have been countless nights where I had no hope. I was like, man, I'm a total screw-up. I've got to fix this. I've got to fix this. I don't even know where to begin fi- fixing that. Like, how am I going to do this? And it's not about my fight. It's about God is fighting for me, and he has not ever lost He's never lost. And every single day, you are being protected, you're being looked after, you're being heard, and you're being sustained. Not just sustained against evil. I love what it says and uh, when he goes to sleep. But every time you sleep and rise, God is sustaining you throughout the whole day. In every moment of your life, he is reigning from where? His holy hill. This means that God is victorious over the evil in our lives. So Christians, please be encouraged this morning, because the same God who arose to defend David is the same God still fighting for you today. This is why David is able to write in verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. We can look evil in the face. We can look our sin in the face, our hardships in the face, and say, I'm not scared of you anymore. I don't fear you anymore. I know who's in my corner. I know who's fighting for me. And the one fighting for me has never lost. He's never lost an inch of ground. No matter how dark it looks, like we see in David's life, but you, O Lord, are my shield. You sustain me. You answer me. You fight for me. And verse 7 tells us how God fights our enemies. First, David calls on him to arise, and this was a military phrase, calling on God to go forth to both defend Israel and lead them to victory. David was calling on God to go forth and save him from those who have risen against him. Verse seven continues, and it's, it says, "It strikes the enemies on the cheek, and it breaks the teeth of the wicked." God isn't just defending David but he is also securing the victory. He's not just on the defensive all the time. He's also on the offensive for you. By breaking the teeth and slapping the jaw, God is literally taking away the bite that evil has in your life. So with broken teeth, they can't prey on him anymore. Their evil has no bite. A lion with no teeth is not that scary. It's a big cat. As weird and goofy as that sounds, whatever, bring it on. A snake with no fangs is a worm. (laughs) It's a worm. An evil that has been put back in its place by God is powerless in your life, and it does not have the upper hand in battle, and with God, it never did. He's breaking teeth. Evil needs a dentist, a good one. I know that sounds goofy, but that is real life. There, death has no sting anymore. Death has no bite. Go to sleep in peace tonight. So, we've discussed where God is and what he's been doing. And lastly, I want us to see how David responded to this evil. Uh, Ray and I were talking about the framework of this passage this week. And one interesting thing he brought up is how this psalm progresses much like our prayers do, meaning, oftentimes, when we pray, we start off with our problem. Ugh, Lord, this this is bothering me. Lord, I'm I'm dealing with this. Lord, I'm I'm a nervous wreck right now. Lord, I've totally failed my spouse today. God, I'm just so frustrated about work. Terry won't answer my calls. <laughs> God, I've got I've got problems. I've got real problems. God, I'm totally overwhelmed. So that's how it starts off, meaning so oftentimes when we pray, oh, I just read that part, but initially, uh, you have David stating this problem, then he reminds himself of all the ways that God has been helping him. I want you to go home and do this today. I want you to go home and actually pull out a notebook and write down whatever evil it is that you were facing, and following that evil, I want you to write about how God promised to do something about it, because there is a promise he will do something about it every single time. God, Lord, I'm, just, I'm struggling with pornography, but you provide the way of escape. God, I feel distant from you, but you will never leave me or forsake me. God, I'm, I'm, I'm not growing. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. He who began a good work in you will see it through. Write your problems down, and then write how God did something about it. God, I, I'm totally hopeless. I sent my son. When you do this, as David did, I believe your perspective will change. I think you will not, I know you will not see evil for what it is anymore. And you will see how God promises to help you fight, whatever it is. Church, God is fighting for you. But lastly, let's go to verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David writes all this, and here we have it, the last verse. This is the conclusion and message of the entire psalm. When evil said to David, salvation was impossible, David countered and said, salvation belongs to who? My God. David blatantly tells us that salvation belongs to one person. That's an important detail. But how did David know that it belonged to him? In this moment, how did he know? In 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16, um, God tells uh, it, tells of his, it tells of God's promise to David. And so I want us to, to read that this morning. 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make... Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart. From him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on my people, was an expression of hope in that promise. David was putting his hope in what God had said to him about his anointed offspring to come, whose kingdom will be established forever. The significance of this psalm lies not in its historical situation or what David, or the the confidence David had in the Lord, but it lies in its theological message. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord will redeem his anointed one, he will establish his kingdom and bless his people forever and ever. So, this psalm is just a foretaste of what is to come through Jesus Christ. God was mirroring what he did for David to what Jesus has done for us. So when you compare Psalm 3, and then you also think about the cross of Christ, there are so many similarities. Enemies were all around. The hope of the world is about to be crushed and die. The enemies were mocking them. There is no hope for you here, no. king of the Jews. There's no hope for you. Crucify him. The Lord's people were being mocked and taunted, and evil in that moment was totally overwhelming. But, behold, there is a God who had a plan to destroy evil and sin. There is a God who who promises to protect his people. He he keeps his promises. There is a God who defeated evil once and for all. There is a God who provided salvation, which can only come through him. Newsflash, that's why we're in the room today because he keeps his promises, and he defeated evil once and for all. So I can get up here and preach a hope to you that is real. You can go home and take that truth with you and apply it to your life because it's real, and you can know, okay, Lord, this evil is so overwhelming, but you're going to fight for me. Praise God, you're fighting me for me because you save. You alone save. I, I cannot save myself. David could not save himself. There. So, what we need to see is that salvation does not belong to us. We look at the comparison, we see the similarities, and we see what God has done in both stories. Why do we need to know that? We need to be reminded that we cannot save ourselves or anyone. It was always about Jesus. David displayed this beautifully in the psalm, his, his lack of saving himself, because the only thing he did, if you noticed, was cry and sleep. That's it that's the only thing he did. He couldn't fight back. He couldn't secure victory for himself. He didn't look inwardly to muster up all this courage to go and save himself. David knew he couldn't do it. And God clearly had the power he did not have. God clearly had control he did not have. He knew that his only chance at salvation in this, in this moment and his eternal salvation was dependent upon God. So there is only one Savior in this story. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Truth number three, God alone saves. Unfortunately, we live in a world that thinks you can be good enough and you can earn your way into heaven, and I do not want you to believe that lie. Salvation does not and never did. It did not belong to the merit of man or to the free will of man. It is God's alone. And everything we see in verses 3 through 8 is only what God could have done. I also want you to hear these verses. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Romans five eighteen through 19 Therefore, just as, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Acts four twelve. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And one of our church's favorites, Ephesians two one through ten. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, like Absalom. But God being rich... In mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ. For for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. I probably went a little overkill with all the scripture, but you need to get the point. Salvation does not belong to who? Us. It belongs to God. And praise God it does, because I would not be a very good savior. I would not. You know how quick I am to get frustrated, and write people off? I'm pretty wicked. Like I, w- I would not, want to. like I do not have the grace. I'm not rich in grace, I'm not w- rich in mercy. Sometimes I, I wouldn't even save myself. I get so mad and frustrated myself. Man, this is, I'm just worthless. Not to the Lord. God alone saves. So the Bible is clear on who salvation belongs to. It's not me and you. And if you take the information from those verses and believe it, then you will receive the blessing that David talks about in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing beyond your people. The blessing of God is his gracious deliverance. Through Jesus, God extends deliverance, victory, and blessing to all who believe in his name. And I hope that that truth is encouraging because if you are a believer here today, you are a part of that blessing. You are a part of the promise that God made to David. We are blessed to serve the one whose throne is established forever. When our kingdom goes to crap, we serve one who is on his holy hill. So here are some takeaways real quick that I want to run through um, before we wrap up. The first one is this. Reflect and remember. If you are a believer here today, I want you to reflect on all the evil and sin God has saved you from. Reflect on how he, is pre- how he was present with you, fighting for you, and helping you grow through your trial. If you've ever been in a counseling uh, session with Brandon, he likes to bring this up. Man, three years ago, look at how different you were. And you're like, oh, okay, Brandon's got some good advice. Yeah, that's awesome. But what he's trying to get you to see, look at what the Lord has done. The Lord has been faithful to you. And he will continue to be faithful. And I also not only want you to reflect, but I also want you to remember that he is faithful to do it again and again and again and again. And he will see you through until the very end. Takeaway number two, pray like David prayed. Find hope in his promises and trust them your prayers are heard from the holy hill. Lastly, uh, uh, takeaway number three, I want us to consider the last character in this story, Absalom. There's a side in this story which is opposed to not only David but to God. Absalom did not want to honor God's appointed king and he mocked who God was. I know there are some people in this room who do not call God their savior. They have not turned from their sin You have not turned from your sin and repented and believed in Jesus Christ. If this is you, then you have, unfortunately, you have no reason to be encouraged by this message. The deliverance, protection, and salvation of God is not for you. It is for God's people. However, it does not have to be that way. Because everybody in this room has the heart of Absalom every single person Christ died for us while we were still sinners he came for us when we were enemies every person has the heart of absalom but god offers salvation to those who repent and believe salvation belongs to the lord and when he when he justifies you declares you righteous and says you are mine then he promises to sanctify you and that's how he fights for you so You're mine. I'm going to fight for you every single day. And then we're justified, we're sanctified, and then we're glorified. And we'll be with him forever and ever. And one of my favorite promises of the Lord is that he is bringing many sons to glory. Praise God. So when evil is overwhelming, know that God is fighting for you and he loves you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you for what a relief that this passage is. God, I, I pray that we will not listen to the enemy, but we will listen to what David wrote down. We will listen to your words that you wrote down through David. Because they were for David in that moment, but they are also for me and my brothers and sisters here this morning. God, I pray that you will just bring comfort. You will you will remind them of the promises that you are sustaining them and their sins and their trials and god you do it because you love us so much be with us lord as we worship you and we remember your faithfulness to us thank you god for being a god who wants to step in and fights evil for us it's in your name we pray amen